Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lapato. I'm the science editor of The Verge. We've been off for a really long time. I think longer than either of us planned. We knew we were going to be off for a week. So here's, let me just break this down because as usual, this is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's a joint effort, but it's also just traveling and a million other things. But yeah. So I, I, I knew I was going to be going to Mexico for a nice vacation. And then we went to Coachella and we thought we were going to record at Coachella. And then Emily's plane got delayed so badly that we sort of scrapped that plan and went and just did reporting on Coachella. We really wanted to do like a driving through the desert podcast like super impressionistic with like maybe some some true detective guitar cues in between <laughs> segments I think that would be great that's right um. and then um, and then I basically got back from Coachella to a family emergency um, so that's what we've been up to yeah <laughs> and then I was traveling and also grieving uh, the purple one <laughs> the oh, Thursday before last oh, um, so it's just been it's just been it's been all crazy but, but uh, we're back now, and we're very sorry that we took this unexpected hiatus. Especially because so much stuff has happened in the last four weeks that we would have, I feel like, we would have just we would have just murdered it on this podcast. We would have just gone to town on it. Um, so we wanted to do a, a lightning round, <laughs> kind of in a style, like, where, I, I don't even know what that game is called, but where you just go back and forth naming something in a category until somebody can't say it anymore. Like, there's alphabet games like that, but this is just a... Last four weeks. Yeah. This is the, game. the last four weeks in, in entertainment and science with us. Yeah. So uh, stuff uh, and like internet discourse. Also. <laughs> entertainment, science, internet. Okay. All right. And I will start it off. Uh, Coachella happened. A robot surgeon has been uh, sewing up pig's guts and may be headed for prime time. Uh, Beyonce re released Lemonade, both a visual album and a new album with um, and uh, and uh, Becky, Becky with Becky with the good hair is the subject of discourse. New studies have been uh, raising questions about a longstanding rule that limits the lifespan of human embryos to two weeks. Uh, that's an ethical barrier, and it looks like maybe uh, they're going to revise it. Uh, Prince died, and it was super sad, and uh, and we hate it. So. Those weird streaks on Mars' surface um, might be caused by boiling water. There was a pretty cool in-lab experiment that demonstrated that at Martian atmospheric pressures, uh, water boils and leaves weird streaks. So, could be. Um, uh, 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 the Met Ball, the Met, the Met Gala, the stupidest, uh, stupidest event all year happened, and the theme was technology and fashion, and some people dressed up like robots, and it was very entertaining to watch people uh, interpret that theme. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is now banning the sale of e-cigarettes to people under the age of 18. The ruling has been finalized, and it aligns with how tobacco products are already regulated. This is making me feel so dumb about my section, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> Uh, people got mad, and I want to talk about this later, but people got mad about Scarlett Johansson being cast in Ghost in the Shell, even though that happened over a year ago, but we saw a picture of it, and so people got mad because they saw the picture. Speaking of pictures, um, uh, the ocean health agency NOAA is currently exploring the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest section of the world's oceans. There are some extremely cool live, there's like a live stream, but there are also some extremely cool things that are being discovered, including a previously unknown species of jellyfish. Uh, oh, Game of Thrones came back. <laughs> 
Game of Thrones came out. Jon Jon Snow is alive. Jon Snow is alive. Um, <laughs> Spoiler. Oh wow, yeah. So uh, I, this totally happened while I was in Mexico. SpaceX landed their rocket on a barge, and then they released 360 degree video fo uh, footage of the Falcon 9 wow, landing. That so was, that was that pretty was cool. huge. Yeah, man. I feel. Uh, I, I. I don't know. I think I'm. I. I. I feel more and more embarrassed with every single with every single <laughs> no, thing that no, I list. No. Um, <laughs> uh, you know. Also, Liz wrote. Speaking of Coachella, Liz wrote a really great piece about Guns N' Roses reuniting, which we both saw standing side by side out on uh, the polo field lawn. And so definitely check that out if you haven't already. I don't know. It's just like I, I, I feel like in a way it's a new it's a new season of, of stuff in general, of, especially culturally on, on my side of things. It feels like things really started ramping up. It's like a new it's like kind of when fall movie season starts and suddenly like, oh, there's all this stuff to pay attention to. It kind of feels like that right now. Yeah, um, we kind of have a similar thing going on in science. Like I've noticed this over the years that there's like a big boom of like shit in the spring and then like it'll be like kind of quiet during the summer and then it'll get really big again in the fall and then it's like quiet during winter break so there's just a lot happening yeah yeah people schedule people schedule their hype um unfortunately <laughs> prince did not um uh but we should talk about something that was a little more current i think or something that that uh that at least the New York Times wrote about recently that is very, I think we've talked a little bit about this subject before, but they did a, a really interesting write-up on it. Yeah, um, I mean, we've definitely talked about weight loss and exercise, and this actually uh, sort of combines the two of our sections because it was a study uh, that was a follow-up on contestants from season eight of The Biggest Loser. And I'm, I'm just gonna speak personally, I'm really uncomfortable with weight loss shows. Um, and I'm uncomfortable with them for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest ones is that shows like The Biggest Loser are focused on dramatic weight loss and it doesn't seem to me to be sustainable in the way that like the, the, the slower and less sexy changes to diet and exercise can be sustainable. And so um, what the study found was that virtually everybody rebounded in weight, um, not back to their original weights, but um, part of that was that their bodies had this calorie deficit going on uh, mm -hmm. because their metabolisms had slowed down. Yep. And uh, one of the most frustrating things about weight loss and weight loss studies is that they often don't go on longer than like a year and a half because it's difficult to get funding for that long period of time. It's difficult to keep track of study participants. Like it's just it's hard logistically. But the thing is, what we do know about long-term weight loss is that people often do regain the weight that they lose. Um, maybe not all of it, but a significant portion. Well, you're talking about when people do these, like when people diet, when people go on really hardcore workout routines, or when people are trying to lose a lot of weight in a short amount of time. Not even, not even just that. <laughs> it okay. turns out your body is super resistant to losing weight. It doesn't want to. Um, and some of that is, you know, probably evolutionarily hardwired for when food was more scarce than it is now. But even, even people who do this, you know, sort of the right way in a, you know, slow and methodical fashion often will have a slight rebound effect. Now, it won't be as, as intense as what we saw with these, these contestants from The Biggest Loser. But, but you do see people Re regain some of the weight that they lost. So usually, um, you know, it, it if it's you know like if you're if you're trying to lose twenty pounds, you might gain back ten. Huh. That that that's just how that's how your body works. It doesn't See, want to lose weight. I always 
always thought that like the most modern or like accepted and healthy version of like training and and diet reform and stuff was about getting your metabolism up like like increasing your metabolism and making it so you're constantly active and so you're actually probably eating more maybe even because you but just like smarter more of smarter foods um but that's not what this is about well, we don't really understand our metabolisms is one of the main problems. And like yeah. anytime you lose weight, your metabolism will slow down in order to make you stop losing weight. Because again, your body doesn't want you to lose weight. That's like not a thing that it, it, it wants to do because for most of our evolution, we've experienced periods of food scarcity. And so, you know, whenever we're basically just storing up for the periods where we're going to go hungry, except that we're never going to go hungry. And so your resting metabolism uh, can drop. Um, if you are, especially if you are restricting calories. Now, doing things like exercising uh, can boost your metabolism and for periods after the workout. But we just, it's, it's, there's so many question marks about how the metabolism works that whenever somebody's like, oh, well, if you eat this superfood, it'll boost your metabolism. I'm like, right. I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it seems like, I, it feels like your body must go into some sort of shock when you're on one of these shows. I mean, you know, you talk about it being like, that you know alternate or more healthy forms of weight loss are not as sexy but i actually feel like the biggest loser method and the way that it's represented on television especially is not sexy it's actually like a spectacle it's actually kind of grotesque like that's sort of the point of it well Um, that was why the show didn't like that's why part of why the show was so upsetting to me was that it seemed like it was more about humiliating people for being fat and like punishing mm -hmm. them into skinny than Mm -hmm like trying to set them up for healthy habits you know what i mean yeah like and if it was you definitely watch about it, the brutality yeah and if you watch it and you are overweight or you do feel bad about your body and for some reason like watching other people basically just get like slapped around for their physical appearance by like some commanding imposing figure or trainer is sort of like a, a kind of like vicarious self-flagellation like it feels deeply psychological and fucked up but that's just me. <laughs> well, I mean, like a third of us, you know, and when I say us, I mean American adults are overweight. Um, well, more than more than a third of us are overweight. A third of us are obese. Um, and so there's like something very strange going on there that I don't really quite understand about the appeal of that show because it was very popular. Um, but like most reality shows, it was sort of based on ritual humiliation, and that really is kind of a turnoff for me. It's why I, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race is one of the only reality shows I watch, right. <laughs> because it doesn't feel like the contestants are being consistently humiliated all the time. Yeah. Listen, like a lot of people really want to lose weight. Like I don't think that, especially given the stigma against being fat in our society, people are just lazy or just bad. Like, I don't think that that's what's going on when you're dealing with um, overweight and obesity issues and like shaming people isn't gonna help. You know, what you need to be thinking about are sort of the infrastructure questions, right? Because there's so many of us, right? So, well, uh, can we actually um, rewind just a little bit and just like talk about the article itself and and who wrote it and what it actually discusses because we haven't actually (laughs) So if you haven't read this article, you should really check it out. It's very, very good. Um, I think it's very good. It's you know, <laughs> it's Gina Colada, so there may be some corrections attached. But um, you know, it's it's about the winner of The Biggest Loser lost that that season lost two hundred and thirty nine pounds. Okay, like he lost like 
a lot, a lot of weight. And he was down to 191 pounds from 430 pounds. And he felt great, you know. And then in the years since, uh, he's gained 100 pounds back. And in fact, most of the, the, the contestants from that season have experienced that, that kind of, not, not as drastic, but that kind of rebound weight gain. And one of the things that was most heartbreaking to me about this article was that one of the people uh, quit a job so that, yeah, Mr. Cahill quit his job <laughs> to, 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 to lose a pound a day to try to like bring his weight back down. Um, and, and that kind of exercise and that kind of calorie deficit, that's not like a lifestyle. That's not a thing that you can do and still maintain, you know, a job and, and, and time to hang out with your family and, yeah. and normal hobbies and things. Um, and I don't think it's a good model for weight loss. And, yeah. and what the study of, of these participants suggests is that it's not. <laughs> like, right. separately from all of the reasons, like, socially why it might be bad, it, it also doesn't work. Yeah. Is it, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's interesting when you, you know, it's one of these, like, can she do it all type things, and you, especially when you talk about, like, women trying to have full-time jobs and also stay in shape or stay physically acceptable. Uh you know, I, I think about, I forget who wrote this. It was, it was, I think, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to attribute it to somebody that's not, but it was, it was basically an article about somebody kind of coming to terms with living in Los Angeles and being around, you know, the stereotypical idea of Los Angeles where everybody's, you know, involved in showbiz in some way and is, and is physically perfect and everybody works out every single day and realizing, well, that's a lot of people's jobs like that's their full-time job is to go to the gym because of you know their physical appearance is the thing they're trading on like that's not everybody's life like not everybody needs to look like they're going to be on television because not everybody's going to be on television but it's really really hard to like to unplug from those expectations that are fed through television up to and including shows like The Biggest Loser. Right. right? And like you see it, it's really pernicious. It's not just television. I mean, like um, Entertainment Weekly this this week ran a piece about novels with with huge advances. It was first time novelists. And, um, you know, they're relative unknowns. They're people who haven't published before debut novels. And what stuck out, and there's a great piece on the toast on this, if you want to go look it up, is that one of the, the editors who's quoted says, uh, we would have paid her the same money if she weighed 500 pounds and was really hard to look at. And what Mallory says, and, and the thing that I completely agree with, is that no one is hard to look at. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? No one's hard to look at. Like, as much as I can sometimes feel self-conscious when I see myself in, in Verge videos, like, I'm not hard to look at. You can look at me. I'm not going to, you know, cause you physical pain. Um, yeah. But there is this just this general attitude that I think is really not helpful uh, about what is and is not beauty that is absolutely coming from, you know, the standards being set by the entertainment industry, which are virtually impossible to meet. Well, um, you should. Uh, everybody should check out that article if uh, they haven't yet. It's uh, what's the name of it again? Just so people can the title of the Times article. Uh, after the Biggest Loser, their bodies fought to regain weight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that, that show's still on. I guess. I mean, sometimes I feel like I catch it, but it, it always feels so. Feels like seeing The Apprentice or something. It feels like a kind of show that that doesn't exist anymore yeah. um there's so many things i could talk about this week as far as on the entertainment side 
I mean, Game of Thrones is back, like we said. We we went through a lot of this stuff. Uh, I also saw Captain America Civil War, which is coming out the day that this podcast publishes, and I have lots of stuff to say about it. But I'm going to go old school. I'm going to go two weeks old school. Um, <laughs> that was an eternity ago, an internet time. Yeah, an internet eternity ago. Like, bugs have, have died. Bugs have had their entire <laughs> life cycle in this span of time. Uh, <laughs> we're going backwards. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and this really happened while we were at Coachella, while we were just soaking up the California sun, just oblivious to all all uh, internet altercations that were going on. But... Um, uh, DreamWorks released a picture, a photo from their upcoming remake or adaptation of the Japanese animated film Ghost in the Shell, and it was a picture of Scarlett Johansson as the the protagonist, the major. Johansson had been announced that she was going to be cast in this film. That was like a year ago, right? It was. It, I think it was January of uh, last year, so it's been over a year, but. And I don't, I don't remember there being that much of a comment over it. You know, she's been, she's to, to her credit, she has been doing a really, really interesting run of work. Like the projects that she's picking or has been picking over the last few years, whether or not I like the films themselves, have been. It's almost like a like a film journalist has been picking her roles for her, like as, oh, as like yeah. an, a meta essay about like what Scarlett Johansson means, because she was in Under the Skin, which was probably my favorite film of 2014. Was that 2014? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Um, and uh, right after that was Lucy, which was a, a weird ass film by Luc Besson, but kind of again, she it seems like she is very interested in the relationship between. A woman and her body and consciousness um, and technology to yeah. a degree as well. So like I th- there's some kind of like android interaction going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she was her. She was the voice in her. Like all this stuff. Um, so I think when she was announced as the lead in Ghost in the Shell, it probably just felt like okay, that makes sense given her given her like most recent work, given what she seems to be interested in exploring outside of the Avengers franchise. That makes sense. And you didn't hear about it for a while. I mean, like, honestly, I I don't really know who's super excited about this film. It's being directed by the guy who did Snow White and the Huntsman. So it's not, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the original film is fantastic. I just watched it again last night. That's why I'm talking about it right now. Um, I haven't watched it in a while, but I kind of forgot that for me it is a sort of, and it is it's a touchstone for a lot of people for the same reasons. And a lot of people turn to other stuff like Evangelion or other anime from the same era for kind of the visual influence that it had on not only Japanese media, but Hollywood, mainstream Hollywood, too. I mean, The Matrix was just like openly ripping visuals and themes from Ghost in the Shell. Oh, yeah. Like, bullet time was, like, something that you see in a lot of anime. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, even the the digital rain, you know, the the green letters. I mean, that's how the the opening credits for Ghost in the Shell look. Like, it's... And this is also fresh in my mind because... I've been watching a lot of media recently. I watched all of the Matrix trilogy over the weekend. I don't know Dang. why it was on television and I just got sucked in and it was a rainy day and I had nowhere else to go. I felt like a potato afterwards. Like I just felt like 
everything had been zapped out of me. I just felt like useless. But um, so, but it was all fresh in my mind. So I, then I was watching Ghost of the Shell. I was like, oh shit. Anyway, so there's a there was a big outcry when when the photo came out. Um, and I was, you know, I kind of caught up on this later. But you know, it, it was basically it, people were basically saying that it does not make sense for Scarlett Johansson to be cast in this role. This is a an Asian property, an Asia, a Japanese, a very, very specifically Japanese story. And the character has a Japanese name. She's obviously Japanese. And so, you know, this is just another example of whitewashing, which is, especially for Asian characters, a big problem, like a very big problem. Uh, and I want to say, too, one of the things that people found particularly offensive was that there were digital effects being added to her face to make her look more Japanese. And um, yeah. I, it, it was like it was I was like it was like seeing a rerun of what happened with Nina uh, yeah. and Joey Saldana. Like, why wouldn't if you're if you're why would you spend your effects budget to do this when you could just cast an Asian person? Right. And I don't know if it's that's been like I don't know if that's substantiated I don't know if that was just a a rumor the VFX thing but if I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that is completely a thing that would happen like Hollywood is that fucked up it's it's just a known fact anyway so I I will I will fast forward my immediate reaction to this which was sort of muddled and I didn't say anything about it for a long time because I was thinking about it a lot I was kind of looking for some Japanese perspectives on it because um, the, the, the Japanese people's uh, relationship to whiteness and race is very, very different than uh, Americans is um, and Japanese Americans is. Um, I am half Japanese also. I, I don't I, I the relationship to that. The relationship of that to this is sort of I don't know. I, I, <laughs> but I found this video that is uh, this guy who lives in Japan, who just like went out on the street in Tokyo and asked kind of Japanese millennials what they thought of uh, Scarlett Johansson being cast in Ghost in the Shell. And for the most part, I mean, there were some variants, but most people were like, oh, yeah, she looks she looks great. You know, it wouldn't be right for a Japanese person to be cast in this role, which is just it's I think it speaks to how complicated <laughs> this issue is. And it's not as easy as, oh, just cast a Japanese actress in it. I don't know. I mean, I you said you haven't seen this film in a long time. Elise, yeah, I, I but... saw it in high school, so I, yeah. I only sort of vaguely remember it. I, I will say that one of the things that sort of complicates this for me is that, and again, I'm, I'm speaking as a white lady, so, you know, there there may be cluelessness about to come out of my mouth, and I apologize in advance. But one I'll of the let you know. That... Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. It, it, it. it seems like especially if you approach anime as an outsider, you see a variety of, for instance, hair colors that are not necessarily associated with Asian people. Mm -hmm. um, and those characters are Asian and are explicitly Asian, um, but you have to kind of like figure that out. Right. Uh, and one of the ways that you tend to figure it out is that usually when white people appear in anime, they're giants and they're blonde and everybody comments about how they smell. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
Well, sometimes, um, sometimes. I mean, sometimes they show up as like the most handsome boy, especially in anime more geared towards young girls. Like yeah. a British guy or an English guy is like, oh, he's got these dreamy blue eyes and this blonde hair. And oh my God, he's just like, he looks like no guy in my class. Like he's so yeah. he's perfect. Um, or like you, you see like, especially like the European influence in like some of the magic girl stuff. Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Because uh, again, this is something that I haven't seen in quite some time. But it's it's uh, the one where they're at like a, a private high school and there is sword fighting over. Oh, um, a, ma- a revolutionary girl, Utena. Re- Utena, yeah. That's Which the is one. a great show. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it's pretty bonkers. But like there is certainly like an interest in like especially British things, yeah. right? So it would make sense that, that some of these characters are British, maybe. Right. Or, you know, so there's like, there is sort of a, uh, something funny going on in right. terms of like the way that animation handles handles characters and race. So, so the thing that's interesting, it's like, yes, uh, characters in anime, they speak Japanese, even though they've got crazy colored hair and eyes, which in no way reflect how Japanese people tend to look. But so, yes, you have you have representation there culturally, but anime is just part of a very long tradition that goes before anime of removing the appearance of Japanese people from Japanese media and pop culture. So it's, and it starts, it starts with post-war. Like you go, like you look at ads for, you know, like commercial art, just stuff that you would see around in the world if you were living in Japan, both pre and post-war and the Western influence and the way that, uh, that characters look changes drastically after occupation. Like it's basically, people are kind of scared to represent as Japanese because it is seen as such a, a dangerous thing. It's like they are they are culture non grata in the world at that time. And so stuff that looks explicitly Japanese is kind of, uh, it's, it's not as marketable. And that becomes really important when they start making toys and trying to make cute things to sell to other countries. They can't look Japanese. They have to look like, like so bonkers western that like you do better than western so that's like where you start seeing the big heads and big eyes and softened features and stuff like i'm sorry if i'm getting really really detailed on it but this is like this is great (laughs) this is like where this stuff comes from it's it's um and it's different and i and i can't speak to this as much in detail but it i to my understanding it's a very different issue than like a lot of people say like oh there's such a thing of um or the, uh, like Korean uh, plastic surgery is very, very rampant, very popular, and it's very, very popular to get your eyes enlarged. Um, that's just a that's a thing that sometimes people just do when they graduate high school. It's just a rite of passage. And I would caution on reading that the same way because Korea has a different relationship to Western culture than Japanese than Japan does, but. It, there, ha- there is a weird kind of self-effacement of of having the actual image of a Japanese person, something that's meant to be exported to other countries, whether that be cultural things or toys or anything, um, which is basically what Japan is known for abroad. Is like anime, electronics, Tech. and <laughs> and toys, and uh, yeah. So I, I just. So to get back to Ghost in the Shell, like the character Matoko is, um, she's a cyborg, 
Like she's not fully she's she is living in what's supposed to be a futuristic Japan, but she's not fully human, let alone fully Japanese. She's sort of an idealized construct that's meant to like fight crime and is able to tap into these networks and and uh, and find hackers and stuff like that and and become invisible. And there is a like she is very tall and imposing physically. And there are other people who are more clearly Japanese in the film that are not. And I think that it's completely a part of the text like that's completely a part of that character i don't know if she's like i don't i don't think you can say like oh she's not supposed to be white like i don't think she's supposed to be japanese either like i i don't know what she's supposed to be she's something completely she's just supposed to be half japanese basically is what I'm saying. Um, um, let me ask you something yeah uh because i think that there's we're getting at something here that's i think maybe a problem anytime you move from animation to to live action totally because you get a lot, you can get a lot more ambiguity um, in animation, not just around race, but around any of a variety of other things. So, is there is there something funny going on when we're adapting? So, what is essentially a cartoon? Yeah. To 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 live action shows to a live action movie. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that the, this starts before you cast Scarlett Johansson. I mean. The the only way that this really makes sense is as a Japanese production to to have an American production company hire a British director to adapt this is is automatically going to lose a lot of of what's subtle and important about the story. Um, you know, obviously that's just off the table because somebody decided that they could make money from this the same way that there's been an Akira film in the works for a while that like Leonardo DiCaprio was supposed to star in. Like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be Akira? That's no. No, no he's supposed to be Tetsuo, I think. And I think that's kind of I think that's been in development how long enough that that Leo aged out of the role. Oh my God, <laughs> but I think that somebody still owns that. Somebody still has the rights to that. But um, again, that is a, like a thoroughly Japanese story, and like, yeah, it's cool, and it was popular in America. It's like one of the most popular at the time. It was like the most popular animated Japanese film to come to the states. But that doesn't mean like that we <laughs> that we can then say oh this is great like yoink we'll take it from here and i say we as a person who lives in america <laughs> but yeah i just i think that the conversation around it when i've been gone gone back and looked at it because obviously it's something that's interesting to me you know i kind of grew up with a, a fascination and a weird relationship with anime but like like I, I wanted to see what people were saying about it because especially because I was like not sure how I felt myself and I just felt like the conversation was really lacking the perspective of history and like what is actually being presented when you see an animated character who speaks Japanese especially a cyborg character in yeah. uh, in an anime film so what I'm saying is question mark question mark question mark <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like now that you now that you mention it, like I'm starting to wonder, like if if this had been a Japanese director, um, mm-hmm. and maybe I don't know, an American production company or a Japanese production company, either way, do you think that we would have seen the same pushback if Scarlett Johansson had been cast? If you know, if there had been input 
from right. the society that, that made this cartoon. Yeah, no, I don't think you would. And I think I would trust the decision more. It's not that I think she's inherently bad for the part, although I think she's too short. I think I think she should be a giant. Like she's so tall. She's like broad shouldered. She's like a quarterback. Like um I mean she's not like muscular, but she's just like imposing and I feel like Scarlett Johansson like even when she's doing stunts as Black Widow or whatever. She always seems like very compact, you know. Um mm-hmm. but what I mean she's she'll she'll play the role well, I think. It's not that I I distrust the choice. It's just um I more distrust where it came from and the yeah. filmmakers and the entire motivation behind doing this project in the first place. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I often wonder about this because um, I like foreign language films mm-hmm. and I from time to time will see them get English adaptations. Uh, yeah. And one of the one of the ones there are a couple that stuck with me where it was like, why would you ever adapt this? And one of them was um, Let the Right One In. Oh, and yeah. another one was Ringu. Um, mm-hmm. And both of those are are pretty much perfect as is. And yeah, I mean, you have to read subtitles, but fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know that that's such a sacrifice. No. And 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 both were were remade into you know uh, American movies and sort of Americanized in ways that, I mean, they're different. They're different creative works, but I, I preferred the originals because there was something that was unusual or or unsettling about them and they didn't quite follow the rhythms that I expect from American yeah. film. Especially yeah, especially with horror films, I think that I would I almost always prefer the original. Although I have to say the American Ring is pretty good. It's like I don't know, it's one of the, I think it's one of the only films that's ever really scared me before, even more so than the Japanese one. But yeah, but but I I yeah, I think it depends a lot on the genre, but like again, it's like we could <laughs> This is something I didn't tweet last night that I thought about tweeting, but I was like what they should have done is just have it be a co-production with a Japanese studio and then like DreamWorks can throw however many zillion dollars they have allocated for this project to like make it not look so I was going to put this in scare quotes but like cheap and foreign because (laughs) that's I feel like uh, Japanese films often like a lot of Asian films don't get uh, distributed in the US at least on any kind of like recognizable level because I don't know like it's just or like like we wouldn't see the ring we wouldn't see Ringu in theaters but like we'd go make it like we'd fix all the things that were like not to our sensibilities or something for for American consumers. It's like, you know, just have them make it and throw all the money you want to make it look the way you want it to, but just at least have the people in charge of the story and the way that it feels be coming to it from a Japanese perspective. But that would never happen. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's that's all. I, I'll, pr- I'll probably write something about this. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but we we should get into another um, big pile of poop. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Um, so science reporter Ariel Duhame Ross um, spent some time with a guy who had such bad gut problems that he decided he was going to take matters into his own hands. He's gonna he was going to do a big microbiome transplant, and that's a very polite she, way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which which involved you know nuking his his native bacteria with antibiotics, and then ingesting pills filled with poop, friends' poop, 
for for those bacteria, and also using um, trying to replace samples of of his skin bacteria and so on. Uh, just basically trying to wipe out his entire microbiome, like all of the stuff that lives in and on him, and and try again with somebody else's. Whew. And when we first got the email for this, Ariel called me and she was like, "Can we report this? <laughs> Is this like an ethical violation?" <laughs> And I don't think it was. I think we reported it um, in a fairly sensible fashion, pointing out that this was extremely dangerous, possibly stupid, and you can't really draw any conclusions from it. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, so I, we're gonna we're gonna talk with her uh, a little bit about what that story was like and what she saw and how to think about this kind of DIY science. So I've got um, Ariel here in the the studio in the the, the very classy studio here at, at Vox. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. So I was just telling these folks about the uh, the sort of the ethical questions <laughs> we had um, about this story. So why don't why don't we start with you know what made you think that this was compelling? Like what what about this drew you in? Um, I was really drawn in by Josiah himself. Uh, you know, he's a really interesting character. Uh, he's done some interesting, you know, DIY stuff in the past. He's actually, uh, he's the inventor of an instrument called the chromacord, um, which is, that actually wasn't in the piece, but he invented an instrument that is essentially like you play bacteria by shining light on bacteria that are, um, they, they vibrate, like it's a specific type of bacteria that vibrates when you shine light on them. So if you can control the light and then control the vibration, you can translate that vibration into sound. So for me, he, you know, he's done some interesting stuff in the past and it was really just his, his character and, um, you know, what was driving him to do this, which from, you know, right off the bat seemed like a really bad idea. Right, because um, for those of you who do not know, w what Josiah was doing is pretty dangerous, and there wasn't any established benefit to doing it. He was basically going pretty hardcore with antibiotics that he didn't get prescribed to him, but in fact bought from online. So who knows what they contained? Right. He he, you know, he tested some of the the bacteria through cultures. He told me, um, but you know, one of them was like a fish antibiotic that that's used on humans as well. But that was the purpose for which it was sold. And you know, it was all kind of kind of sketchy. Uh, you know, eating feces is also an incredibly dangerous thing to do. You can get any number of of pathogens uh, transmitted through that. And you know, he wasn't at all testing the feces to see if if they contained any of those pathogens. So he could have gotten really, really sick. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that I think gave us a little bit of pause at the beginning of this story, right? <laughs> was like, this is dangerous. This guy is doing something that is legitimately dangerous and probably kind of stupid. Right. And, and not only that, but he really wanted to publicize it because, you know, in his mind, it made sense to try this out and then to you know, tell people about it and, and inspire them to take health into their own hands, which, you know, the copycats, like the the risk of copycats, is is really real with this, which is why I tried. I was so skeptical throughout the entire piece. Yeah, I mean, that was something that we definitely felt <laughs> was important to balance, right? Like because. What worried me, and I've, I've seen this done before, is you'll have some, like, body hacker who's like, I implanted a magnet in my hand, and the reporter's like, whoa, that's cool. And it's like, well, this person just underwent surgery in a probably non-sterile environment, and, you know, the body is going to degrade 
the body degrades metal. I don't know if people know that, but it does. Um, so the body is probably going to degrade whatever has just been implanted. And we don't really know what the effects of that degradation is going to be. You know, <laughs> this is this is maybe not a good idea and maybe we shouldn't be hero worshiping this. Right. And, you know, there's actually, you know, people who do those things who implant magnets. They actually some of them, you know, the people who who really, you know, try to do their research actually choose the ring finger. Uh, for the implantation, because that is the finger that is supposedly the least worrisome if you lose it, like the least, you know, the, the least problematic to lose. Um, <laughs> and, and to me, that decision, that that idea that you actually have to think about that is is pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, like for me personally, um, for those of you who do not know, I wear contacts uh, and I have thought about getting laser laser eye surgery, and I know plenty of people who've gotten it and have had. I've gotten it. Know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> had great effects, and I am just so freaked out about any surgery that I don't absolutely have to have that it's just never happened for me. Like oh, I just yeah, haven't done it. <laughs> it's terrifying, and you know, you, you actually, you know, they really cut your eyes open, so it's it's a really interesting thing to happen. It's terrifying. Um, I did it anyways, but it's terrifying. And so, but this is, I mean, this is actually like a surgery with real surgeons and you're in a sterile environment and it's in the hospital and like and there it's have been, been pretty been well validated. Numerous studies published on that. Yes. Yes. Whereas right. and with, which is not where we are with this. <laughs> no, with Josiah, you know, the only, the only thing that, that uh, fecal matter transplants are, you know, proven to treat is C. diff infection. C. diff is a bacteria uh, that can cause, you know, really, if you have recurrent ones, like it could, it could kill you. And... That's the only thing that it's shown to work for. And in, you know, the only when when it works, it's it works under very specific conditions. You know, you take a certain amount of pills, the fecal matter, the donors have been screened, the fecal matter has been screened and and none of this happened. And Josiah doesn't have C. diff. He, um, you know, the biohacker who did this, he, you know, he he has gastrointestinal issues that he was trying to treat. And um, there's no no nothing supporting the idea that this would help him at all. This, let's be clear. Also, he didn't know what his GI issues were. Like, he couldn't tell you specifically whether it was, you right. know, the result of, like, you know, what is it, IBS? Yeah, uh, he was, told I think, me one he word has he... ulcers on a regular basis and that he has IBS. And when I pressed him, at some point he said irritable bowel syndrome. And I was like, wait, 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 those are two different things. Um irritable bowel disorder and I was I you know I, I pressed him and he, he ended up telling me that he didn't remember what his doctor told him in college and you know there are any number of reasons this you know he has had a very kind of traumatic past so maybe that's a reason why he doesn't remember um, but you know that definitely put my you know kind of you know my skeptical kind of radar just like pinged in that very moment because you know right. what are you trying to do here because the thing is like it's not totally uncommon when you're you're trying something that's relatively drastic to do it in a pilot group. Like um, I'm thinking specifically of um, the um, designer blood cells for cancer. Like that that was a pilot group of three extremely sick people, right? But we knew what they had, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We we knew what their diagnosis was. We knew they were out of treatment options, and so this sort of last ditch effort to teach their their um, blood cells to to hunt and kill cancerous cells made sense. It, you know, everything had been really well established. And in Josiah's case, we don't know what he has or what he had. Um, and and we also don't know a lot about the the donor sample because he didn't run an analysis beforehand mm -hmm. um, because he said that that interfered with his DIY ethos and that really that really kind of made me mad. So you want to talk a little bit more about the DIY ethos and like. 
Right. Well, he, you uh, know, that, his, that played a role. His whole idea is that he wanted to make the experiment as accessible as possible to others, which, you know, later on, he did tell me and that didn't end up in the piece either. But later on, he, he told me, you know, it's interesting that I wanted to, to work on making this as accessible as possible and then spent four thousand dollars having samples sequenced, you know, from throughout his experiment to see if the, the, the transplant had actually taken. So, you know, in that way, he kind of reverted back to conventional science, even though, you know, though nothing from that data actually makes any sense um, in, in terms of, you know, a real scientific study. But yeah, he, you know, he really wanted to, he, he wanted to teach people about science, he told me, he wanted to make it accessible. And, you know, people, he said, don't have, you know, necessarily access to be able to send a, a fecal sample to a lab and therefore him doing the testing for himself would take away from the whole like bio biohacker attitude according to him well and this is this is one of the things that does bug me about biohackers is i don't want people playing with pathogens in their bedrooms i just don't like i'm not interested in that personally as a person who lives in the society okay like um you know i read these stories about the people who are against vaccines and are mailing like chicken pox infected things to each other and like for instance i have never had chicken pox mm. i've been vaccinated but I, I have never had it and um, the vaccine does a pretty good job of protecting but it's not infallible and so if you expose me to a person with chicken pox it's not impossible that i would get chicken pox right. which is pretty severe when you're an adult um so there are a lot of like sort of it, it brought up i guess for me the sort of push and pull between like this this thing that i feel which is that science is really dominated by academia in a lot of ways that I think are not good and not productive. And like one of the most obvious ways is if you look at a scientific paper, it's basically impossible to read. Right. And it's, you know, science communication from scientists is, you know, it's really scientists who can actually talk and in English about what they're doing. They're few and far between. They're pretty rare. And so, you know, it does it does seem important to demystify science and to, to let people know that this isn't just, you know, some kind of weird priesthood that like right. is hanging out in, in a lab somewhere. But I don't think that this is the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I think that this particular, choosing this particular experiment to try and teach people about science was was uh, misguided for sure. That's definitely the way that I feel about it. Um, at the same time, I feel like there's, you know, there's a larger theme here of people who feel like, you know, doctors aren't addressing their issues. You know, I, I, people with IBS, you know, it's, it's kind of like this catch-all diagnosis, if he does have that. It's his, you know, it's this catch-all diagnosis that you're given and that, you know, the, the treatments are, are really hard to come by. And there's, you know, there's stuff that works essentially is just like try to cut out everything that, that you know, is fun for you to eat. And then maybe right. you can have a life that is like generally okay. And I, you know, for people who are suffering and in pain every day, it's it's so unsurprising to me that somebody would turn to the one like over-the-counter drug that you can get for free super easily, <laughs> which is poop. Um, yeah. Like that is the least surprising thing that, that um, you know, there's no wonder that people are doing this. I mean, it seems to me that it comes from a place of desperation mm -hmm. more than anything. Like it speaks to the desperation, I think, that um, you must feel when you don't 
have control over your gut. And like this happens to me occasionally, right? Like if I travel, um, mm-hmm. I don't want to I don't want to get too graphic here, but I do get <laughs> constipated. Uh, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, that happens I'm, to everyone. <laughs> I think that happens to most people. But like or, you know, like if you eat something wrong and have diarrhea, like stuff like that, like for me, those are small things that are super unpleasant and then go away. And for people who have, you know, IBS and similar disorders, that's just their life. Like, you know, like I, I found it really arresting that he was pooping four times a day. Right. Uh, because when that has happened to me, it is you know been a total pain and I've been miserable about it and then it stops after like a day or two and I'm fine and everything's normal right I mean he told Um, me that sometimes he'd be working at at, you know the Ames Research Center at NASA and he'd have to leave work in the middle of the day because he was just so uncomfortable and you know he'd work from home instead you know this was really debilitating for him um, right. So and I don't want to yeah. underplay that because I think that that's a big motivator here is just like this kind of sense of helplessness and desperation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But at the same time, you know, he's trying he's talking about it as as an experiment. And there's no way to qualify this as an actual scientific experiment um, there. You know, it's, it's this one guy doing this one treatment on himself with no controls. The environment was incredibly variable. Um, you know, he, he did keep track of like what he was eating, but there's no way to know what actually made him feel better at the end of, you know, the 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 eight week period. Um, so, that you know, it it, it doesn't. There's it's not no even answer. Blip. No, there's no yeah. answer, and there's no way I can't. You know, nobody. I can't tell you this worked. There's no way I can do that, and it's not even a blip on the scientific radar. Right. Uh, you know, for and for all that danger that he put himself in, like that's 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 what you get is no answers. Right. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned this in the piece, where like he had. A brand new T-shirt, so he knew he hadn't colonized it, but he was using old jeans. And it was like all of these like sort of moments where you're like, yeah, that is kind of amateur. Right. (laughs) You know, it's 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 funny. The reason why he was wearing old jeans is because he he told me that it's really hard to find jeans that just like fit him well and fit him the way he wants to. So he just didn't bother with that, Um, which I I thought was like incredibly charming and weird and didn't make much sense. but yeah, that's that was his reasoning. Um, so so tell me a little bit um, about what it was actually like to hang out with him because I know that you you hung out with him for a little while and uh-huh. then you and I got drinks and then you hung out with him for a little while more and I understand that there were some some pretty bad smells involved. Oh yeah, I mean the first the first day that we uh, this didn't end up in the piece, but I you know I went over to the donor's house. Uh, we picked up the sample. There was no smells involved then because it was sealed. Uh, the 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 poop essentially. We picked up the poop, and uh, and then we went home in that after to his house. And that afternoon, he was you know in his kitchen mixing stuff up, and and you know it was all out in the open in the kitchen, really close to pots and pans, which to me was a little bit worrisome. Um, and he was trying to to fit the poop into little gelatin capsules and what's really funny is that um if you he was mixing it with saline solution and if you put liquid in gelatin capsules you know just like gelatin is supposed to dissolve in a person's stomach uh, really it's only good for powder like it dissolves so it, it was instantly dissolving um in his you know running in his hands and then finally he just tried to like stuff it in there but throughout this whole process like it was a really smelly kitchen but for some reason, Josiah kept putting his nose in the bag and smelling the the, the poop because he was just like kind of fascinated by it. 
And, I, you know, I had to ask him, like, how is this possible that you can do this? Like, I'm, you know, five feet away and this smells terrible. But he has really bad sense of smell. He he says he's an anosmic. He has, you know, a really, really limited sense of smell. You know, he can he can taste, which means that he can taste very limited flavors like bitterness or sugar or saltiness. But, you know, he misses a lot of the nuance. So in this case, it actually really played in his favor. And that is the reason why this story ended up being called a bitter pill is because at some point he, you know, in his process of trying to fill the capsules with poop, some poop ended up on the outside of the gelatin capsules and he he tasted it. And when I asked him, you know, how it tasted, he told me it tasted a little bitter. Um, which I'm sure oh, is, that is, all? is definitely, yeah, like uh, I'm sure is definitely not even close to what another person's experience of that would be um, because he has such a bad sense of smell. Huh. Now, we focus pretty heavily on uh, Josiah's gut in the piece, mm-hmm. um, but, but, but he did do, he did at least attempt to do um, a microbiome transplant on his skin and in his nose. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So he wasn't just, uh, you know, I said we, you know, we went and picked up the the feces from the donor, but uh, there was also a situation. You know, he was also Josiah was also taking uh, samples by rubbing these cotton swabs that had been put in saline on the donor's arms and inside his mouth and inside his nose uh, and even on his legs to try and get, you know, bacterial samples from his skin and from his nose and his mouth, um, which he then took with him. And then he was, you know, while he was at the hotel where he did the transplant, he was rubbing the saline solution on his body with the idea that he would try and colonize his skin with the donor's uh, bacteria and try and change his micro his skin microbiome. Um, and the first time that he told me about this, this was long before the experiment ever took place. I was like, I've never heard of anybody trying to do this. I don't even know if this is a, a thing that is even possible. Um, and I looked it up and I emailed a bunch of people. And finally, one researcher told, told me that um, researchers had tried to transplant bacteria from one part of the body to the next in adults. And they had done it between volunteers as well. But they had only looked at it over a period of like eight hours. Um and they found that sometimes if you put, you know, uh, tongue bacteria on a forehead, it doesn't last at all. It really is not, you know, a transplant that is in any way, um, you know, long term. But if you do it from the tongue to the forearm after eight hours, it seems to hold up. You know, and, and that's the closest thing. Nobody has ever tried to kill their skin bacteria with antibiotics and then tried to replace it with skin bacteria from somebody else. That's definitely nothing close has ever happened. Um, And I I don't, you know, I tried to ask Josiah, where exactly did this come from? He told me um, he had imagined a future. He made a a video on YouTube where he imagines a future where police can identify people by their skin microbiome, which, you know, people have very, very different kind of compositions of bacteria on their skin. I'm not quite clear on how individual each of those compositions are from individual to individual, but they can be quite distinctive. And, uh, you know, that's the future. And he just wanted to know if you could change that. He was also trying to treat uh, post-nasal drip. And he thought that maybe if he changed the bacteria in his nose, he could do that. Um, so, you know, he, he was just trying stuff. Uh, and really, the, the skin stuff didn't, didn't seem to work from the, the sequencing uh, that he did at, 
you know, it didn't really seem to, to take at all. But it, it was certainly an, an interesting part of this. And it, it's a huge chunk of it because really that's why it was a microbiome transplant, not just a fecal matter transplant. Right. And like even there, there were still like loopholes, right? Like, I mean, one of the places where you tend to have the most bacteria on your body is the genitals. And he didn't do anything with the genitals, as I understand it. Right. He didn't try and, you know, get a sample from his from his donor, uh, you know, in that area and then try to transplant it to his own genitals. Like there, there was none of that. He actually he didn't even, you know, none of the skin samples from his donor ended up, you know, on his penis or testicles. Um, and to me, that was always interesting because I was wondering, you know, that part of your body touches your thighs. And then, you know, presumably there's a lot of like areas where that could just, you know, end up recolonizing your body that you're trying to change. Oh, yeah. So, you know, skipping that part of your body that's, you know, that's warm, that's, you know, perfect for bacteria seemed like such a such an interesting decision. But he told me that there was no scientific value in in attempting that and trying to gather samples from that. And, you know, that's one of the things that happens when you're dealing with somebody who is self-designing an experiment is, you know, I, I can't question that. I can't say, like, this doesn't make sense. I can say it in the story. But, you know, when it's happening, I was like, oh, well, all right. I mean, this is your experiment. So so that's, you know, those that's one of the odd things that happened. He also took, you know, a third of the pills that you're supposed to take for an actual fecal matter transplant. And when I pointed this out to him, he, he was very, very surprised. He didn't actually know uh, how many poop pills you're supposed to take um so you know that that you know all of these little things these little things that that kind of came up throughout the process of reporting this really kind of put the um you know any kind of conclusions that you can draw from this are definitely put into question because of stuff like that what ended up happening for me was i i was as i was reading this was i came to have a greater appreciation for academic science because you know you you have to talk to your colleagues about what you're doing your experiments and then you have to go through an ethics board and talk to them about why you're making the design the way you are and whether the design is is effective and whether you know how the risk benefit profile looks all of these things that you have to do uh, not only do they safeguard your research subjects, but they also kind of safeguard you as the scientist in a way, because you're forced to consider all of these things that could potentially mean that your data gets a null result. And that kind of that level of specificity, I think, is really difficult for those of us who are just lay people um, without access to labs and so on to achieve. So I found I found myself kind of feeling much better about academic science after having having read that story. What what was what how did how did you feel at, at the end of this? Um, I felt like there I, I felt similarly. I think that um, you know science communication is my job. I think it's incredibly important. Re- it being rigorous in these kinds of things and and you know not putting your life in danger unnecessarily is is you know pretty basic. I I have you know. Josiah is an incredibly interesting person, and I'm really happy that I know him. But yeah, this was this was incredibly ill-advised, and you know, just don't do this at home. All right. Well, thank you, Ariel, and uh, uh, check out the article on our site because it is very, very cool. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. This was great. 
Yeah, so it turns out not all science is shitty, but this science was. Um, <laughs> I got dad jokes for days, people. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much, Ariel, for, for stopping by and joining us this week. Um, that's it for us this week, but we will be back next week, fingers crossed. Um, I don't I don't think we're going to have... I, don't, I, hope we're, I hope we aren't going to have any more emergencies. I know. I, I, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to jinx it, but, uh, but that's our plan anyway, uh, which is what God likes laughs at we uh we are on itunes and you should subscribe to us if you haven't already it's verge esp we are also on soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash verge esp i think i think that's it feel free to give us five stars yeah give you, us five stars if you, you know, rate us anywhere. don't have anything better to do leave comments <laughs> just like just tell us about your day i don't know uh and we are also on twitter i am at emily yoshida and liz is at miss lapato ms lapato and that does it for us Good show, everybody. Bye. Bye.